This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Get Started Investing, a production of Equity Mates Media. This series is everything you need to get started on your investing journey. Now you can get rich very young just by having an idea. I'm looking for durable competitive advantage. I'm looking for something that has a moat around it for a considerable period of time. And I'm looking for an an honest and able management to run it because I don't know how to run it myself. Welcome to Get Started Investing ETF Deep Dive. In this bonus series, we're going to explore everything there is to know about exchange-traded funds or ETFs so that you can feel confident to use them in your investing journey. This series is proudly supported by BetaShares, and we've brought in some of their experts to break it all down for you. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this third part of our three-part series on ETFs. We've covered what an ETF is, yes. all the basics you need to know. Then we got stuck into some of your options, and the big takeaway from that is the there's options a are... There's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> they're not unlimited, but they're pretty bloody close. This third one, I think, is probably the most important, and speaking personally, the one that I need to learn most about, so I'm very oh, excited well, for this episode. Welcome to the show. Because <laughs> your, your ETF journey doesn't stop when you buy that first ETF. No. There's, you know, you got to think about what you're building in terms of a portfolio, yep. and then there's some management steps that you've got to keep in mind and keep doing. So I'm excited for this one because I think I'm going to learn a thing or two along with everyone else. Likewise, Ren, and it is our delight to welcome Alistair Mills from BetaShares. Alistair, welcome to the show. Hi, gents. Thanks for having me on. So, Alistair, before we get started into, as Ren said, sort of building your portfolio using ETFs and then some of the, I guess, the admin side of things that is boring but important, really important to know, (laughs) we love to hear, firstly, what you do at BetaShares, but also your first investment. What's the story? (laughs) Successful or not? (laughs) That grin makes me think it's a good story. (laughs) It's um, it's my my role at BetaShares, I look after the institutional side of things. So your asset managers, super funds, insurers who are starting to use ETFs more and more. So we're looking to expand that out. I also do a lot of our portfolio analytics. So advisors, professional investors who are looking to look at their asset allocation or security selection, and we've got capabilities to help them. So I do a lot of a lot of that side of things as Perfect. well. We can use all that knowledge to how yeah. to build a portfolio. <laughs> In terms of uh, my fir- first investment, look, it's actually a bit of a boring one, I suppose. Like having worked in ETFs for the vast majority of my sort of investment time, frame ETFs have really formed the base of my portfolio since then and coming to Australia as well where everyone loves some specky uh, stocks (laughs) (laughs) things have actually got a little bit wilder on the (laughs) small side and with that some of my portfolio returns have uh, actually deteriorated 
<laughs> some shocking calls. But um, first investment, yeah, being quite young when I did it, was um, pretty focused on the technology side. So the NASDAQ 100, and that's uh, served me pretty well, actually, as a call. Yeah, can't go wrong. That's a very sensible first investment. I know. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's how it should be. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I, I lost 99% of my money on my first investment, so I'm envious of your first investment. Uh, that was, yeah, the first one like that. I bought, bought plenty of stuff that's lost me plenty of money, more like physical assets. <laughs> but no, in, investment-wise, it was, yeah, reasonably sensible and boring, I suppose. <laughs> hey, nothing wrong with that. No, nothing wrong at all. So I guess we want to break this episode into two separate parts. Uh, the first part around building a portfolio and then the second part around managing your portfolio. So if we start with building your portfolio and we start quite broad, I guess, what are some of the key consideration individual investors should be thinking about or factoring in when they're building a portfolio? Yeah, some of the most important things are really knowing what type of investor you you are. So mm. probably the most important is your time frame. How long have you got? And that's really going to determine how much risk you can take. If you're you know, a retiree and you lose 99% of your money, you might not necessarily have the time to make it back. Whereas if you're 18, you've got years and years and years if you look at returns on a chart and stretch them out, that volatility becomes a smaller component, really. Mm, mm. So time frame's such an important thing. And the longer you've got, the better. That builds into what your risk tolerance is, and that's going to t- determine what you invest in. If you're lower, lower risk, you're going to be in more defensive assets, probably more bonds, more cash. If you're higher risk and you've got longer, you can take some take some riskier investments there. So that's a huge one. And then probably finally, how much time do you actually want to spend managing your portfolio? Mm, that's a good yeah, one. That's um, a really big one, yeah. You can actually build a really good portfolio just with a few ETFs that's going to serve you really well. You don't have to look at it quite as much as if you're picking individual stocks or getting really detailed with it. So how much interest have you got? How much time do you want to spend would be another one. Three really sort of simple um, things to understand. Something that is often poorly understood is the term diversification. And that's another key consideration when building a portfolio. What are some of the different types of diversification that an investor sort of should be aware of when building their portfolio? Diversification holistically is just having a broad range of different things that perform differently at different times because if you it's a big cliche chuck all your eggs in one basket if they go up everything goes up and and down vice versa Hmm. so you can break diversification down into different levels the first one's probably your asset classes so equities bonds commodities maybe within there you could split to domestic or international Getting further down, you know, individual regions. So are you mixing just Australian equities with or US equities, but Europe, Japan, break it down. And then sectors as well. Australia's got very heavy tilt to banks and resources. So you might diversify into technology, which you can get through something like I said, the NASDAQ before, but US stocks or some specific sectors within Australia. And then finally, you've got the individual securities as well. I mean, you could either hold one stock, you know, just hold Apple for your technology exposure, or you could hold 100 of them, and that's going to diversify you further. So just on that point, you're, you know, you're a beginner investor, and you've just bought your first ETF, which are sort of touted as a good way to diversify. And you're thinking about building a portfolio of ETFs. You've bought, say, the A200, which follows the top 200 stocks in Australia. Is that enough sort of diversification? Should if you just keep buying more and more of that, 
like how do you think about diversifying that way? Yeah, it's going to be a good starting point. And compared to a lot of portfolios where people have got like five stocks or 10 stocks, it's definitely going to be more diversified there. If you are building up your wealth and adding it continually, there is definitely benefits to being more diversified than just Australian equities. Yeah. Um, if you compare charts of, you know, the US, whether it's the S&P 500 compared to Australia, again, they perform well at different times because of their makeup. So one ETF, isn't necessarily going to give you the proper asset allocation. And that's the, that's the key part of diversification and building a really good portfolio is decent asset allocation across those broad asset classes. So if you can add more ETFs to that, it's going to benefit you. There are actually some ETFs which are almost like an ETF of ETFs. Mm. That That's a really good start, like the most simple way to invest and proper, properly diversify. If you buy one of those, you've got Australian equities, international equities, yeah. some cash, some bonds. That's a one-stop shop. Yeah. Does beta shares have an ETF of ETFs? <laughs> we do. We've got, uh, <laughs> we've got four there, actually, at the moment. Nice. So ranging on risk profiles, high growth, yeah. growth, balanced, and then more conservative there. HHF, is it HHF, G high growth? Yeah, DHHF. DHHF, yeah, I'm in on that. It's not growing. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of others are growing. Just <laughs> so on diversification, one thing that I guess investors should be aware of is around ETF overlap because some people might think they're diversified but they're perhaps not as diversified as they think. So I guess a good example of that is if you invest in the a200 ETF and you have the top 200 Australian stocks and then you also invest in A tech. you've got two different ETFs but their holdings will overlap. So how do you think about ETF overlap and how do you think investors should be, what should they be factoring it into when they're building a portfolio? Yeah, I mean one of the key benefits of an ETF is how transparent it is. You can see all the regions in there, see the sectors, see the individual holdings and all of their weights within the portfolio. So that's a good example. I mean, Australia's broad market, whilst it's 200 stocks, is actually very heavily concentrated to the top end. So the bigger stocks have a higher weight. So, you know, your big four banks and the top 50 stocks are almost all of your return drivers. Whilst um, Australian technology is still within that, if you actually look at the individual portfolio holdings, you can see whether you've got big overlap and Afterpay is a, a very heavy component in ATEC or the Australian Technology Index and is actually creeping its way up in other indices. But if you actually look at all the individual holdings, you can see whether there's overlap there, you know, something like two technology exposures. So the NASDAQ, or which has a heavy technology tilt and a cybersecurity ETF, Whilst you may think they're both technology stocks, if you actually break it down, there's not necessarily that much overlap. Mm. But that's not to say that it's still going to diversify you across sectors. They're both going to give you more of an upweight to technology. So these are in important considerations. I like that way of thinking about it in terms of what drives the returns and what's the weighting in the ETF. Because to that point, like an overlap in and of itself isn't a problem. You know, the NDQ, the NASDAQ ETF is just so driven by those top five or six technology stocks that even if it has a cybersecurity as stock as, you know, number 98 on the list, it's not a meaningful overlap. And then if you think cybersecurity is a good investment separately. So I guess in terms of people doing that work and figuring out, is there an overlap, but also like what is the, the size of the overlap? Where can they go and find that information around, you know, what's in each fund? Yeah, if you go on the website, um, go on the fund page, 
they'll all have a, a download. Well, you can download an Excel spreadsheet, which will have all of the holdings individually and their percentages next to them. If you're looking at a couple of ETFs, download those two things and you can just bang them together and you could see if you've got a 10% weighting to Apple in one and 10% in the other. You know, think about whether you need two ETFs or one's going to do the same job because the more ETFs you have, if it's not actually adding sort of a return profile, all you're doing is paying more brokerage, probably paying your accountant more because you've got another <laughs> line in your, your portfolio. Yeah, yeah. So look, don't necessarily buy two when one will do. But most of the ETFs across the market have been designed to be different. You know, Adam spoken to you on a previous episode, but there are loads and loads of different ETFs. But here in Australia, we've only got 200 or 250 or so. So there's still like each one's doing quite a separate job. There's so many different in the US. I mean, there's thousands yeah, and thousands yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there are going to be very, very similar ETFs out there. Let's flip it the other way. The top tech stocks in the States at the moment make up something, you know, ridiculous 26% of the total S&P 500, which is just a phenomenal figure. Given that those very concentrated amount of stocks will really be driving the overall performance of the index. Why wouldn't you just go out and buy all five of those stocks and just let them go? If you look at how that's changed over time, like it hasn't always been been that way. And it is it's obviously quite a big thing at the moment. And there's a lot in the news you read about that how concentrated the indices are becoming. Mm. But look at the market. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, the top 10 stocks weren't the same stocks as they are now. So if you just take a stamp in time, buy those 10. I mean, who's going to say that they're going to be the, the best, biggest companies in the world? I mean, mm. look at Tesla wasn't sort of anywhere near where it was yeah. like there. Still you'd shocked still it be, is. Yeah, but, uh... <laughs> yeah, you'd still be holding things like Coca-Cola and Exxon yeah. as, your, as your main ones, True. which have slowly fallen down the ranks. So holding an index, which is market cap weighted and that allows your winners to drive through and drive your returns and it does keep you diversified even though you've got quite a small tail it enables your winners to work their way up and you get that sort of natural selection so to speak as opposed to just holding 10 and hoping for the best that's something that we actually haven't touched on in the previous two episodes is that the underlying holdings do change why do they change and how do they change and obviously is this something when you're managing your portfolio that you need to be aware of does depend on the index methodology, really. And what they'll have is, say, the ASX 200, which is the 200 stocks, the very bottom of the market, and you'd have like stock 200 and 201, these index often rebalance quarterly, and they'll look at the size of the company and number of shares. If you were just swapping them in and out, you'd have a lot of turnover. You'd be swapping between 199. Yeah. <laughs> so like the Premier League uh, yeah, relegation. Yeah, exactly. So you'd be swapping up and Nor down all the time. Is it Norfolk or uh, Norwich that's always yeah, in and Norwich, out? Yeah. <laughs> Sunderland a bit up and down a bit. So you have what's known as buffering and it does stop that turnover. But it is it is important as, as companies grow that they are represented in, in the index because indices, when they were first in bed, they were a way of measuring the market. Yeah. Um, and there's a way of measuring the top 200 top 100 and like i said that's going to change over time and you've got to let those newer companies build zoom's a really good example of the nasdaq 100 that it's just become so instrumental in what so many people do for work that was nowhere near the top 100 you know six months ago or, mm. or a year ago i suppose time's gone very fast um, <laughs> <laughs> sat in my house just working um so like a year ago let's say it, and that has just forced its way into the top and is now really representative of how people are doing business yeah. and 
interacting with one another mm. and is getting represented in those indices. Mm. So, but for individual investors, when an index rebalances and when an ETF rebalances, they don't have to do anything or there's no tax implications or anything like that. Like you guys handle all that for us, don't you? We handle that. The tax implications are passed on to investors. So if you think of a fund or an ETF, like we're going to be at the top marginal tax bracket. So any capital gains that are through, say, rebalances and creations and redemptions, which um, can get streamed out, but do do have an effect or distributions, you as the individual are taxed at your marginal tax bracket. So it's not all done at a fund level. One thing that does get taken into consideration is if you look at where your international ETFs are domiciled. So if you buy just a US listed ETF that's holding European stocks, you've got to pay tax on the US investment that you've made, and they're paying tax on the European investments that they've made. Whereas if you just buy an Australian domiciled, you know, US fund, it's it's just one layer of tax. Yeah. And you don't have to worry about doing your, they're known as uh, W8BEN forms. Yeah. Um, and you fill that out to stop yourself paying double tax. Whereas if it's an Australian fund or an Australian domiciled fund you're investing in, that's done at the fund level. So it just makes your life a lot easier, avoids you necessarily paying twice as much tax. If we recap on building a portfolio and then we move to managing a portfolio, for an individual investor, there's a number of considerations that they need, their time horizon, their risk appetite, and that those two things feed into you know uh, the strategy, I guess. And, and then from there, things around diversification for asset allocation. And then the final one, which I thought was really good and one that we haven't really touched on much is then your ability or your desire to actually spend the time doing the work and it's funny I was just when you said that I was thinking about some of the interviews we've done you know we've had everyone from someone who believes all you need to buy is one ETF an MSCI all world index you buy it you hold it for 40 years and you're all good to people that spend you know 14 hours a day studying individual stocks there's just such a range of different I guess appetites to spend time but the long and the short of it is there's no one right way. Like no. it, whatever your appetite is, is your appetite. And I guess ETFs give that whole range of people an opportunity to benefit from the stock market. Uh, 100%. Like it, it just really depends on your interest as much as anything and how much time you've got. You know, people dedicate their lives to being professional investors and their like their skill set is researching all of these individual companies. And then you've got others which their skill set sort of building the portfolios and they might use ETFs to do that. You've got ETFs which hold thousands of stocks. You've got some which hold 30 stocks and they can be used to make more tactical tilts, be a lot more active in your portfolio compared to like a really broad market ETF like the MSCI World that you said that's got about 1,500 stocks. Makes it makes it a bit simpler. Mm. So let's move to managing your portfolio, something that is uh, particularly important but sometimes often overlooked or misunderstood. Here at Equity Mates, we have two key policies. We hate fees. And we hate jargon. <laughs> Fast, though, going to be adding a third, which is we hate share registry paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> they send out so yeah, many damn so letters. Much. Every trade you do, every decision you make, letter, letter. So, look, someone out there who wants to disrupt the share registry business, copyright, we're going to do it. But, um, <laughs> for those of our listeners who have no idea what I'm talking about, share registries, Let's just start with the basics. What are they? Yeah, so they apply when you, whether you're buying individual stocks or ETFs. Because you buy an ETF 
on the exchange, so you're not buying directly from the ETF provider like BetaShares. There's a share registry that looks after your holder information because you're buying a fund, you buy units within that fund. They look after your details. They look after your tax statements. They'll send you letters on distributions and they keep your information there. So they they do a lot of the administration um, and communication on our beho- behalf to individual investors. Like you say, they send send out a lot of letters. <laughs> yeah, so it saves you, but really, I mean, come on, <laughs> we, we're copying it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I get them as well. I've, I and yeah, you go you go paperless. Um, Doesn't which make a difference. Most of them seem to yeah. You do still get a lot of papers. So <laughs> yeah. it's something that could. So for example, let's just take a practical situation. When I buy a stock, beta shares will communicate with the registry that I've bought that stock rather than you send me a letter saying, you know, here's your chess and HIN and here's how many units. The registry will do that, send it to me. Do I actually need to keep that paperwork? Most of it will be, will be stored. It's, I wouldn't recommend you just throw it in the bin. It's pretty... Yeah, like, it's not, that, no, not that I've been doing that at all. Yes. <laughs> Nowadays, it should all be kept on like on a system, but you, just in emergencies, um, you lose your hard drive or the cloud, I, the cloud I, goes. I, I think in defense of share registries, before <laughs> online brokerage was a thing and of before course, everything... Of course, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. of course. They, but they, just they would have served a critical time. purpose. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they still do serve a oh, critical they, purpose. I'm just having a bit of fun and games <laughs> with the amount of letters that they send. Yeah, yeah. So let's just recap. So they're the sort of middleman that, you know, you said holds information and that sort of stuff. Is there anything that an individual investor needs to do or understand, you know, they've bought an ETF, then what? Yeah. So when you buy an ETF and your trade will settle through your brokerage, you'll get a welcome letter that'll come through and you'll have your HIN. You should log into the share registry when, yeah. when you do that. And different ETFs will use, or different providers will use different registries. As same with individual stocks, whether it's link market services, computer share, there are others. You log in with your HIN, your postcode and your provider. That'll show you what you've got. From there, probably the most important just starting point would be check your bank details are correct on there. If you are receiving dividends, make sure it's going into the account you want. It doesn't disappear, but it'll be held with us opposed to going with you and you'll wonder why it's not there. Again, with dividends, you can you can elect to do a dividend reinvestment plan. It's called DRP. So if you're, you know, an accumulator, you're not worried. You're getting paid a salary, you're paid to work. You don't need dividends to pay your bills Um so you can automatically reinvest those dividends uh, and they will we'll do that automatically and it will save up until you've got enough to buy a unit or it might already be multiple. Automatically reinvest, saves you brokerage, just goes straight back into the fund and you'll hold more units. So that, that's a really important consideration, particularly for people who are looking to accumulate wealth. And then finally, like all your tax statements are on there. So you just download a PDF when you're doing your tax return or speaking to your accountant and that's all that's all kept on there. Mm. So dividend reinvestment plans are something that um, a lot of people have questions around, um, especially with ETFs, I think, for, for that exact point. They want to just keep accumulating while they're younger. So do all BetaShares ETFs offer the ability to do dividend reinvestment plans? Yeah. So some of them, you can actually decide what percentage you want to do. It's not necessarily just non or off, but keeping it simple, yes, they, you can do it on across all of them. Yeah, it makes it really easy. And a common question people have is, um, let's say A200's unit price is around $100 at the moment. Let's say I receive 25 bucks in dividends, but I've elected to participate in the dividend reinvestment plan. How does that work? 
Yeah, so that'll be held in an account, like a custody account um, on our behalf, and that's all pulled together until you've got enough um, cash to buy a whole unit. So you'd need four distributions, let's say, to get that $100 unit. Until then, it's just sat as cash. One thing to bear in mind, sort of later down the track, but if you were to sell that ETF before you had enough um, cash to buy a dividend, you sometimes need to let the provider know so that you actually get that that leftover cash. And the process of letting the provider know isn't finding your personal email and sending it to you. What is it, Alistair? That's where the share registry comes in again. exactly, so they can manage that as well. Yeah. Super critical, I think, and very important to understand and something that, you know, you can fumble your way through, but, and we haven't often spoken about it much on Equity Mates podcast, but to your point, Alistair, you may find that you do have multiple logins for multiple share registries, depending on what you're buying, individual stocks, different providers for ETFs. I think if you're not going to keep your letters, at least keep your login details <laughs> for your share registries, yeah. because it is crucial to manage your actual underlying sort of uh, admin for for the stocks that you're holding if you want to change from dividend reinvestment to actually getting the cash when you finally make it to 60 and you need those dividends. <laughs> if you can't log in, you're going to be screwed. <laughs> 100%. So yeah, nice to um, touch on that because as I said, we haven't done that before. So let's just move to one more question about dividends. Franking credits, another sort of a love of uh, Australians <laughs> for, for good reason. and But again, something that is often sort of overlooked or confusing or maybe not important as a beginner investor, but just sort of generally speaking, what are franking credits and why should it matter? Yeah, so franking credits these days are quite quite an Australian-centric they are, uh, thing. Yes, a lot yes. more, a lot more <laughs> countries used to do it and have slowly pulled it back. You saw what happened when Australia tried to do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not even Turmoil. stop franking credits; just stop paying <laughs> people yeah. money for their franking credits. <laughs> um, so that was, um, yeah, an interesting, uh, interesting period. So a franking credit it's called franking here, imputation credit, in its simplest form, just stops you paying double tax on your dividends. So an Australian-based company, if they're earning revenue in Australia, they're already paying tax on that. It stops you paying tax on top of tax already paid. That you can get right down into some yeah, sort of no, that's critical good stuff. High level. How do you know if your dividends are franked? So it will say on the fund, um, on the fund page, whether they're franked and part of that distribution statement will give an estimate. The ASX website also has some good franking information. If you look on in the dividend section for every distribution, it gives you an estimate. It's only applicable at the end of the tax year. Uh, you don't get franking credits each month or quarter. It, it will be as 30th of June approaches. And you need to look, not everything is franked. Um, yeah. International equities aren't mm-hmm. going to be franked, obviously. Not 100% of Australian equities are franked if all of their business is off, offshore, bonds, cash. So it's it's really simple, and you'll see on the on the fund page on the website you'll see what percentage it's franked and whether whether they're actually eligible. Let's use A two hundred as an example. They pay a distribution, and that's really a roll up of all the companies that are held in that fund's dividends. Yeah. And so it's the same with franking credits. Whatever those underlying companies pay in terms of franking credits gets passed through to the ETF holder. Yeah. yeah. So the the fund is invested in all of these individual companies. Obviously, receives all of the dividends and the associated franking, as you would if you were an investor buying the individual securities, and then all of those are distributed equally to to the investors that hold it over the X date. 
And then if people aren't sure if what the franking credit amount is or anything like that, again, is it go to the share registry and you can get all that detail? Yeah, so the first place you go, just go onto the fund webpage, have a look through the announcements or just have a look through ASX announcements and it will give you a breakdown. Other than that, yeah, the share registry is really good. Just find your distribution statements and that that will give you some some information. The other option is your brokers and I'm not going to throw a broker under the bus, but one of the brokers that I use prepares tax statements by the end of October. And it's like, my tax return's due before then. Like, <laughs> that is of no help to me, and it adds no value getting it in October. So you know who you are listening. <laughs> sort that out. <laughs> Ren, speaking of tax, what should, and this is not directed to you, Ren, this is directed <laughs> to our <Alistair. laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> it's a confusing time of year, end of financial year. It's enough to sort of be dealing with ATO as it is but you've just taken on some investments for the first time. You've got your ETF sitting there. They've paid a distribution or or a dividend, or perhaps they haven't. What should an investor be thinking about? Just think about which ETFs you've got in your portfolio. Like you said, if you've got multiple registries, make sure you're remembering everything that's within your portfolio. Things that are going to impact your tax return will be what distributions were paid. So if if an ETF doesn't pay a distribution, you won't actually get an annual tax statement. There's nothing to tax. And that di- those distributions will be made up from dividends. There might be capital gains, as I said before, those are distributed to investors. So all of these are going to impact how much how much tax you pay. If you bought or sold an ETF as well, you're going to be crystallizing your own capital gains potentially. If I've bought an ETF, it's gone up 10%. I haven't sold it. Do I have to pay capital gains tax? No, unless the fund has paid you a distribution, there's nothing to do. As long as you're still holding it, there's no tax event. You're not actually crystallizing anything. Yeah, nice. So some investors invest for income. Maybe there's a whole other class of investors that actively seek out ETFs that don't pay dividends because they want simplicity at tax time. Absolutely. I mean, I put my hand up. I'm one of, I'm one of those guys. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want any distributions. Like I'm sort of, yeah, it's more of a headache. The more distributions you have, honestly, the, the more of a headache it can mm. it can be. If you if you were just holding something that never distributed and it's only once you sell that you've got any kind of tax event, those don't really exist because you do have rebalancing in funds that is required. So, But if, if you could do that, um, be the simplest form. Are there tax considerations if... You are paid a dividend, but it's reinvested? Yes, there are. You are given the associated franking credits in that, like they don't just disappear. So even if you were reinvesting all your dividends, you still get all the franking credits that would be associated to that. But it is still classed as a, a tax event. So because you've made income from that investment. Yeah. If you were paid the dividend and just reinvested it back in the fund, because that's all that's dividend same, yeah. reinvestment is. Yeah. It's just we do it for you, probably save you brokerage compared to what we're paying. So it is still a tax event there. Yeah, nice. We've talked about how you manage the process while holding. The The main things are jump on the registry, make sure you know what's going on there. Don't lose your logins. Don't lose your and logins. Then, <laughs> buy a shredder. <laughs> <laughs> and then obviously at tax time, there's a number of considerations, especially around the distribution. So that's that, they're the key considerations when you're managing it. Now, the final part of the ETF journey is actually selling. And hopefully, you're selling for a large gain after you've <laughs> held it for a long period of time. So I guess if we start broad, and this is, a, this is kind of a how long is a piece of string question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. When should an investor sell an ETF? <laughs> 
quite a few different reasons yeah. you could sell actually sometimes you just need the cash i've sold sold things um and that might impact which ones you sell you might sell something at a loss because you you're not going to like you're not going to give yourself a tax bill if you just needed the cash um to make a you know an emergency payment or some some people invest for something you know you might be investing for a deposit on a house and when that time comes around it's going to be time to sell some of your investments so it's not always like a, t a tactical play. Other other reasons people sell, there the may be a new ETF that's come to market that they prefer as that sort of core exposure. Others, if you are being more active with it, you know, the more tactical exposures, you may have had a six-month view on, you know, Europe or the UK has been like incredible value since Brexit and you thought that was, that was going to sort of work out and the COVID came out and trashed that. But um, <laughs> you've... You, um, but you've made some tactical active positions in your portfolio and you you see something else that you'd like to tilt to. So it's not always 100% buy or sell. The other thing is if you're rebalancing your portfolio, and this is a key one, like if you invested in two two stocks or two, two ETFs, whichever one performs better is going to become a, a bigger part of your portfolio because that monetary value is going to increase. An important part when you are building a portfolio is rebalancing. So you're keeping to what your original asset allocation was. So you might trim something off um, and reallocate it back in, you know, on a stock-specific basis. Anyone who bought Afterpay at $8, that's now worth a considerable <laughs> more money in their portfolio. And they may take some profits and bring it back down because now you're heavily exposed to one stock. So as something grows, it can actually alter your diversification. To close that out, you know, we've spoken about what you need to do when you buy and when you're holding. Does an investor need to do anything when, other than obviously hit the sell button? Is there anything they need to consider when selling an ETF? It's pretty straightforward in terms of the, the sell process on screen is very similar to the buy the buy process. After that, when it comes to the registry, you'll get another letter. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be your exit statement. It'll tell you when it was that you sold because these are going to have tax implications, yeah. knowing how long you held it for. Yeah. You know, going back to franking credits, you have to have held something for 45 days to get franking credits. So if it's been less than that, it's going to... So there are, there are a myriad of different things that are going to impact what happens after you sell and most of them are to do with tax yeah yeah like i said i'm not a tax advisor yeah, it's yeah. one of the more complicated issues we could say it, it is annoying hours. to understand but just <laughs> record your transactions yeah. in any way possible i think because when it comes to tax time if they go oh what'd you sell and you're like shit i did sell that but yeah, yeah, yeah. when did i do it what did i sell it for was it a loss was it a profit yeah. 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 If you don't want to record it all yourself, there are a bunch of websites and stuff out there that can help you do that. I mean, we've previously had the founder of ShareSite yeah. on the on the show before, um, but there's a bunch of others as well. But I think that timing point is a really important one as well because there's all these rules, that franking credit rule. There's a rule around capital gains discounts if you've held an asset for over a year. And I'm sure there's a bunch of other ones as well. So yeah, record what you paid, how much you bought and how long you held it for at a very minimum. And yeah, yeah. Like an accountant will help you with all of that. Like they do, do provide a decent service. Um, <laughs> but yeah, just make it easy for them. And it is a lot easier now. Everything's online. I mean, even if you're using a brokerage account, the records are all there, even if you have shredded all of your, your letters. Whereas <laughs> like back in the day, you'd just be leafing through papers yeah, and yeah, papers. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. You know, you never, you never know what you're doing. So most stuff is in one easy to access place nowadays. 
One final question about selling. Does anything change for an Australian investor if they're selling an Australian ETF or an Australian ETF that holds overseas assets? It shouldn't make too much of an impact, to be honest. If the fund is Australian domiciled, um, you're basically invested in an Australian security there. Again, it's going to have more tax implications is the thing. It's those franking credits, the CGT discount from a broad basis it shouldn't make too much of a difference yeah yeah the good thing about selling an australian atf uh, that holds u.s equities rather than uh like u.s equities directly is that the timing piece like you get it during the day <laughs> yeah, well that's true you don't have to sell it two in the morning yeah, exactly you don't have to stay up yeah <laughs> well alistair you've managed to make some of the more uninteresting parts of etf interesting <laughs> uh, so thank you for that it's been a pleasure having you on get started investing big thanks and uh look we look forward to keeping in touch i think there's going to be many more questions that come through as our audience grows with this sort of product so appreciate it no thanks very much for having me on yeah hopefully next time talk about something more interesting we promise you will <laughs> but thank you thanks for listening to get started investing a production of equity mates media please remember that everything you hear in get started investing is general advice only The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances or goals. The hosts of Get Started Investing may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.